Well, again, welcome to Christ Church. It's great to see all of you and be with you in worship today. And a special shout out to our Downers Grove family worshiping at our Downers Grove branch. Um, it's always great to be connected with you in worship as well. Uh, well, my name is Aaron Foster, and I have the pleasure of serving on our team here in our family team, specifically with our high school community. And as many of you probably know, Summer season for our family team is always an absolute sprint. This past weekend, we had um, this church building here transformed into a safari adventure land where hundreds of kiddos at VBS learned that even though life can get wild, God is good. Um, it was an awesome week. And then this weekend, in fact, just this morning, we had ninth and 10th graders head off to a mission trip to Minneapolis. And tomorrow, all of our middle schoolers are heading to the famous Camp Cow. Um, so if you would join me this weekend just praying for um, supporting those students and adults and praying that God would be moving in amazing ways in their life throughout their experiences. Um, we would really appreciate that prayer for them this week. Um, but this weekend, we are jumping into the third and final week of our chemistry series in which we've been focusing on transforming relationships. Relationships are the building blocks for community. And they're also important places where we can offer and receive the love of Jesus Christ to and from those around us. In other words, relationships have crucial importance for the life of the believer and non-believer alike. Now to briefly catch us up on the series, we kicked off with a conversation seeking to understand our own reactions to others. Often our natural reactions in relationships can be self-serving, which ends up being destructive to the health of that relationship. We were challenged by the ministry of Jesus and how often he put questions of self-awareness in front of other people, challenging them to think about um, how they treat others and be honest with themselves about that. Last week, we um, focused on the amazing chain reaction that can take place when we start to live out conscious, loving actions. What does it look like when we can transform our reactions to be others-focused and modeled after the love of Jesus? And then that brings us to this week and the very special topic that I get to bring to you guys, conflict. We excited? Let's jump into it. Some of us might be laughing because laughter is a good way to cover up the discomfort of talking about a difficult topic. Fair enough, same here, that's the boat I'm in. Some of you, maybe even a smaller number, might actually be laughing because you know me pretty well and you know that I am probably the most conflict-avoidant person you've ever met. And so the idea of me coming up to share about a topic that I want to avoid creates this weird cycle um, that you're going to experience now, I guess. Um, but it is, it's true, it's a problem. I'm conflict avoidant, and I'm actually gonna share with you a couple really petty ways that that conflict avoidance comes out in my life. So first of all, never ask me to choose a restaurant that you and I, or even worse, a group of us should eat at together, um, because knowing that my decision will probably let somebody down, be it a restaurant that they don't like, there's food allergies there, or they just ate there this morning, um, I'm just going to completely avoid answering the question and turn it back to by saying, oh, I don't know, whatever you want is fine. Because the potential of letting somebody down and creating that kind of conflict is just too overwhelming for me to lean into. So maybe we do actually end up choosing a restaurant. It wasn't through me, somebody else must have chosen it. We end up at the restaurant. I'm somebody who would much rather eat a meal that's overcooked or undercooked or a completely different menu item than I ordered, um, as opposed to alerting the server that, hey, this is actually um, a little bit different than what I ordered, because that conversation also is too overwhelming for me. 
Um, all right, you have to bear with me on this one. This is when I'm feeling really conflict avoidant. Um, I will actually drive out of my way to avoid the main York Road entrance of our Oak Brook branch right over there um, because the conflict potential, bear with me, like I said, as the southbound traffic merges from two lanes to one lane right as you turn in is too overwhelming. It outweighs the convenience of actually using that entrance. So I'll breeze by and use that right in, right out, just past it. Conflict and traffic, I don't know. I don't see that mixing very well. Last one, um, and some of the high schoolers in the room might have heard this when I shared it with them um, a year or so ago. One afternoon when I was in school, I was working at one of the campus libraries, um, and I was at one of those study desks with the three walls, um, and I was in my work. It was a quiet day at the library. I was the only person in that section of the library. Um, and as I was working, I was either reading or writing a paper or something, and I hear somebody walking up behind me. And as the footsteps get closer, I hear a woman excitedly say, hey, Chris. Cool. Um, I know a few things. I know I'm the only person in that section of the library other than her. I know that my name is not Chris. I know that my name has never been Chris. But I also know that correcting her would create a conflict conversation, <laughs> right? So I would have to tell her, oh, wait, I'm actually not Chris, and then that would be awkward for me. That would definitely be awkward for her. Where does the conversation go from there? And so as she walked by, after she said that, I made direct eye contact with her, and I said, hey, it's great to see you. <laughs> and in that moment, my conflict adverseness actually changed my identity. So it's a problem. Don't get me wrong, it sounds as outlandish to me as it does to you, um, but that's my relationship with conflict I avoid. And maybe some of you are in the same boat as me, and you're maybe feeling a little bit affirmed by some of the wildness of my examples, um, which is great, but just know the further we go today, the less affirmation you might be feeling of avoiding conflict. Um, so hold on to that. But others of you might actually be on the opposite side of the spectrum. You love conflict. You thrive in conflict. Sometimes um, you might just start conflict just to see the reactions of the people around you. It's like a sport for you. Um, raise your hand, show of hands, who loves conflict? I'm seeing finger pointing instead. Um, so you guys can work that out after. Or maybe this will be helpful. We'll see. Um, but sometimes, yeah, however you handle it, or if you don't handle it, the fact remains that conflict is forever going to be a part of relationships, right? So often we judge the health of relationships even by the amount of conflict present. But maybe it would be more beneficial to focus on how the individuals in the conflict work and process through that together. Conflict, you see, when handled well, it can actually bring about the type of transformation that Christ longs for us to experience. Researchers have found that navigating conflict can bring about trust and honesty, emotional connectedness within relationships. So it can't be all bad, right? But what's dangerous, what's damaging, is how we engage it. So there are so many scriptural uh, examples of conflict being a catalyst for transformation, but today we are going to focus on the story of Joseph and the tensions that he had with his brothers. The story starts in Genesis chapter 37, and I'm going to kind of read the bulk of the chapter for us, um, and then we'll kind of work back through and pull out some of the points of conflict that we can learn from today. 
As I read through the chapter, feel free to follow along in your Bible, on your device, or sit back, close your eyes, picture Donny Osmond with some Andrew Lloyd Webber music in the background, um, and put yourself into the story that way. But however you follow along, please be listening for the things that might be fueling the conflict that we hear about in this story. And so this is what the word says in Genesis 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought back their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed, bowed to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more. Because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When, his father, when he told his father as well as, as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Skipping ahead a bit to verse 19, Joseph has been sent out to find his brothers to bring back yet another report about them for their father. As he approached, they see him in the distance. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. He said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who then took him to Egypt. And then in verse 31, they got to Joseph's robe, or they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And so the rest of the chapter describes Jacob's mourning and grieving for his son and lets us know that Joseph ends up in the care of the Egyptians. All right, you can open your eyes, stop humming those show tunes. Um, but let's take a step back and try to slowly go through the story to identify some of the points of conflict that we see. Before we even get to Joseph and his brother's interaction, we learn that Joseph had brought um, a bad report about the brothers to their father. On top of that, we know that Jacob, their father, plays favorites. 
And this is nothing new for Jacob. And we read all about his knack for favoritism earlier in Genesis in the stories of Leah and Rachel. Of the two of them, we know that Jacob had a much greater love for Rachel. And so that atmosphere of favoritism that Jacob brought into the family was kindling for the conflict to come. It was like putting a pot of water on the stove and turning the heat onto low and just starting that process. That favorite status that Joseph had in the eyes of his father, plus the bad report that he brought back about his brothers was more than enough to set his brothers against him. In verses three and four, we read this. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been so upset with somebody that you couldn't speak a kind word to them? Maybe couldn't even speak to them at all. What was it that escalated that conflict to that level for you? But back to the story, Joseph starts to turn the heat up on the pot as he gathers his family to tell him a dream that depicts his brothers bowing down to him. You can feel the heat rising in their response in verse 8. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. We can pretty much relate with the brothers here, right? This favorite son sharing dreams that point to his own elevated status. This kid is so full of himself. He needs to be brought back down to reality, right? And it's so clear to us at this point that you might think that Joseph would understand the situation. His brothers are furious with him and the arrogant sharing of the dream only adds to that dynamic. But this is where Joseph's blind spot really shows through in almost a humorous way for us, the reader. In verse nine, it reads this. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Joseph, just stop. Come on. Um, Listen, he said, I had another dream and and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. That cringing feeling that we're all experiencing right now shows how oblivious Joseph is to how his stories are worsening these relationships with his family. Unbeknownst to him, his brothers have hit their boiling point. They're full of jealousy and hatred. Verses 10 and 11, we read the the response to Joseph's second dream. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but, the, but his father kept the matter in mind. So here we are. We're at the height of this conflict, um, and the brothers are out grazing the flocks, and we see Joseph coming toward them. They see him off in the distance, and this is how they react. Here comes that dreamer. You can almost hear the sneering in their voice. They can't even call their own brother by name but instead they mock him and they start to plan how they can get rid of him. So then Joseph arrives and they try to get even with him for his pride and his arrogance. They throw him into an empty cistern and sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites, bringing his torn and blood-stained robe back to their father. They convinced Jacob that their brother had been killed by an animal. And so throughout the story, I want to point out a few elements that together have made this conflict possible. As we talk through them, start to think about how these might also be present in the situations of conflict in our own lives as well. 
For the first one, um, we're going to talk about environment and atmosphere. And for this one, I actually want to draw a comparison to something that I've been noticing in my own life. Um, Over the past five or so years of my life, I've experienced milestones that some might call signs of adulting. Um, getting married, taking care of a dog, buying a house, these sorts of things, things that really solidify one's identity as an adult. Um, and in fact, the most adulty of them just happened the last uh, couple weeks ago when I brought home a mint plant and a jalapeno plant that I want to grow in the backyard. And all of a sudden, I care deeply about the environment that these plants are living in. I'm asking questions like, is the soil good for them? Are, are they getting enough water? Are they getting too much water? Is there too much sunlight where they're sitting? These are questions that I've literally never asked before in my life. But I care because this environment that these plants are growing in is so important to their health. And so as we talk about environment of conflict, um, we need to point that out in the story of Joseph. Because just like plants, it's important to be mindful of the relational environment that we are creating with each other. If we're not careful, we can easily foster an environment that's great for growing conflict. And that's exactly what we see in this story. We have the partiality of Jacob, the father, that sets Joseph above all the other siblings in the family, creating an environment in which unhealthy conflict can thrive and comparisons are running wild. So thinking through the areas of relational conflict in your life recently, what has been the atmosphere in which that conflict was born? Is it self-promoting? Is there hostility or undue pressure in those relationships? Where might you be creating such an environment in the life of your marriage, your family, coworkers, friends, What would need to happen to create a transformation in that atmosphere, in that environment? So we have environment. Secondly, Joseph has an obvious blind spot in his character and is often the nature of blind spots. Everyone can see it but him, right? He comes across as arrogant, prideful, superior, egotistical, fill in the blank, but he doesn't see it himself. The blind spots that we have, and yes, each and every one of us have them, can be so dangerous when navigating conflict. The things that we do and say are often received much differently than we intend. And that easily drives a larger gap into our relationships if it goes unchecked or if we're unwilling to be honest with ourselves and others about it. So what might your blind spots be? And maybe a more important question is, are there people in your life that can help you see those in a healthy way? Finally, Joseph's brothers have become full of envy and hatred for Joseph. And this is evident of a lack of trust in God's work in their lives. When I become jealous or envious of others, it's because I'm stacking up their situation against my own and saying that what God is doing in my life, the things that I have lined up um, in my experience, pales in comparison to what these other people have. Comparison can be a major catalyst for damaging conflict. So how can we become more confident and trusting in God's work in us amidst relationships that have so much potential to breed envy in us? I think a large motivator for the negative outcomes of the conflict in the story of Genesis 37 and the conflict that we experience in our lives today stems from how we engage and navigate that conflict. For the most part, we and the 
members of Joseph's family in the text operate out of what psychologists will call the social exchange theory. Essentially, the social exchange theory points out that human relationships are often built built and maintained on a sort of cost-benefit analysis that seeks a balance in benefits given and received. In other words, if I'm putting in more time, effort, even money into a relationship than I am receiving out of it, things feel unfair to me, and I will start to naturally shut off those streams until everything gets evened out and we're back to normal. It makes sense. Um, it's, it's kind of a sense of seeking balance and fairness in our relationships, and it feels natural to us. It feels fair to us. But at the end of the day, this model, if we use it to navigate conflict, it's going to be dangerous for us. Because truthfully, this model is, is self-serving. The question it's asking is, how do I get the best for me out of this relationship? How can I make sure that I am set up in a way that's successful for me in this relationship? It's looking for fairness. But instead, we need to navigate conflict with humility. The goal is that conflict does not become something that we hide from or something that we seek out, but instead something that we enter into humbly when it inevitably comes up in our lives. Firstly, in conflict, we need to remain humble to our God. If we're not entering conflict when the mindset that God can work through it to transform us, we are missing the point. All throughout scripture, God transforms through conflict. The stories of the prodigal son or the, um, many of Jesus' miracles are stories of heart change and life change, transformation amidst conflict. Jesus' saving work on the cross and the redemption for our sins begins with the conflict of our sin. It's in our humility to God that we can allow him to start to strip away our envy, our jealousy, and our dislike for our situation, replace it with comfort knowing that he is in control and that he is working for our good. God works amidst conflict. But to be a part of that transformation, we must be willing to seek his face in our struggle. In those moments, we also must be humble to the other, which is often probably the more difficult part in conflict. The fact is we can't successfully navigate conflict if we enter into it clamoring for footholds to climb above the other party or to reach a level of fairness in the relationship. With that attitude, we really only have ourselves in mind. And we see that actually in the Genesis story with Joseph's brother, Reuben. During their plot to kill Joseph, we get the sense that Reuben wants to save him and bring him back to their father, which sounds noble enough, right? Until we actually realize that his intentions were likely only self-serving. You see, if they had returned to his father without his favorite son, Reuben, who was the oldest, knew that in that strained relationship, he probably would no longer receive the birthright from his father. But, If they could return Joseph, the relationship could be restored and he would end up receiving that benefit from his father. And so this type of false humility comes up in our relationships all the time. And we use it to gain a self-motivated leverage in our conflict. But it's only in true humility towards others that we can actually stop and listen to what they have to say as a reflection of their heart as opposed to coming up and crafting the perfect argument to say why we are right or why we should be elevated in the conflict. It's only in true humility towards others that we can be shown and accept our blind spots and begin to grow out of them. 
When we enter conflict and humility to others, we start down the path of reconciliation, of redemption, and of transformation. So to understand what this true humility looks like, let's read from Philippians 2, um, where Paul offers the church in Philippi just a beautiful, beautiful image of the humility of Jesus Christ. This is verses 5 to 11. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and, he, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can see the power of humility in this passage, right? And Paul's urge to the people of Philippi is actually a really good challenge for us as well to follow Christ's example of humility in our relationships. If there was ever someone who deserved glory, deserved attention, deserved praise just for who they were, it was probably Jesus, right? Fully God. And yet he doesn't use that for his own elevation. He doesn't use that for his own benefit. He uses that position of power um, and uses it completely different. He doesn't treat us as we are, completely subordinate to him, completely reliant on him. But instead, in the midst of conflict, he pours himself out and becomes a servant to those around him, a sacrifice for us. This passage also offers us a picture of the power of humility in relationships and the way that it closes as well, sharing an example of unity where all are bowing and giving praise to God. It reveals a pattern that shows that what begins with humility can end with unity. We'll notice that through the life that Jesus, of Jesus that Paul is arguing or urging us to use as a model for our relationships, that while humble, Jesus never lets go of the truth given to him by the Father. Humility doesn't mean that we should be steamrolled or given to others when we are confident in the truth of a situation, but instead humility means that we are following, allowing God's opportunity to work in the conflict and that we're truly listening and caring for the other. The story of Joseph and his brothers does indeed end in humility. When the brothers are all finally brought back together in Egypt, we get a sense of true humility to one another, recognition of transformation, reconciliation, forgiveness. In this story, we see that Joseph doesn't use his forgiveness to gain moral high ground over his brothers but instead he becomes a servant to them. He humbles himself after he sees the transformation that his brothers have had. And so our challenge today, this week, this month, is to adopt that same type of humility. And so first we need to identify where we stand in terms of handling conflict, where the conflict stems from in our lives. Um, Maybe you're like me and you avoid it. But what would it take for us to take a step toward healthy navigation of conflict, knowing that it can bring about true transformation? Maybe you've got blind spots. You're prideful in conflict. 
Maybe you offer a false humility in order to gain leverage sometimes. How can you pour yourself out? Like the example of Jesus Christ in order to serve the other party and allow Jesus to work in the situation. Maybe you've become resentful or you become envious in times of conflict. What would it look like to fully trust God with your situation in order to limit your comparison to others? You see, true humility, unlike the social exchange theory, it does not seek fairness in relationships. In fact, Jesus' example of humility and grace towards us is completely unfair. We don't deserve reconciliation. We don't deserve redemption. We don't deserve forgiveness from our creator. And yet out of his profound love for us in his great level of power, he humbles himself to death on a cross as our sacrifice so that we might experience life to the full. And so in our relationships and places of tension and conflict, we should follow that example by treating others um, unfairly, not by tearing them down or criticizing them when we feel that that's what they deserve, but instead by humbling ourselves and freely offering them love and forgiveness. So this week, don't approach conflict as something to avoid. Don't approach it as something to push back past quickly, as something to seek fairness in or something to win. But instead, let's take the mindset of Christ Jesus and enter into conflict as a servant for the other, as well as being expectant and excited for God to work through it. Let's pray together. God, we are truly humbled by you. God, by the example that you set up for us in scripture, or the way that we see you in and out of every day, God, we are humbled. But God, sometimes there are moments in our life where tension comes, conflict rears its head, Lord, and that humility goes out the window for us. God, the humility towards you disappears, the humility towards the other disappears, and Lord, we pray today that we could change that. God, that we would have the strength to follow your example. God, that we would lower ourselves, we would pour ourselves out for the other, not to let go of what we believe is true, in your name, Lord, but instead to serve others well, to love others well, to allow you to do your work in conflict, to bring about that beautiful transformation that you offer all of us so freely. God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.